This podcast is brought to you by the Mountain West News Bureau with support from America Amplified, a community engagement journalism project. Twenty twenty was a rough year. More than three hundred thousand people in America died from complications of the novel coronavirus. But it was the single death of a black man in Minneapolis that sparked nationwide protests against systemic racism and police brutality. It also sparked our Mountain West News Bureau to dig into the numbers of people killed in our region during interactions with law enforcement. We'd been hearing something anecdotally, that in our region, the frequency of those fatal encounters is particularly high. And that got us thinking, is that true? If so, why? And if not, why do we keep hearing this? So in this episode of Facing West, we decided to truth squad that perceived reality. From the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm your host, Maggie Mullen, and this is Elevated Risk, Police Violence in the Mountain West. So this project began with what seemed like a troubling but fairly straightforward question. Are people in the Mountain West more likely to be killed by police than elsewhere in the United States? And we realized pretty quickly we'd need the help of a data whiz, someone who could not only track the numbers down, but help us understand what exactly we were looking at. I don't know. I I do enjoy kind of like getting in the weeds and uh, kind of mucking around in spreadsheets. But then the thing that really um, excites me is getting to to talk to people about data. That's Jordan Wirth Brocks. She worked for several years as a data journalist before heading back to school to get her PhD in data communication. That aha moment when, you know, people are like, oh, this is this is kind of a tool I can use to understand the world around me. For our project, the first challenge that Jordan came up against was this simple fact. Historically, it's been hard to get reliable data on the number of people killed by police. The system was recently revamped with the FBI tracking and publishing fatal encounters. But there's a caveat. That data comes from police agencies, and it's a voluntary system. In other words, those agencies don't have to send the FBI the data, and most of them don't. So Jordan turned to several independent organizations that have sprung up in recent years to try and fill the gap. The Washington Post has a project, um, as well as The Guardian. Others are led by uh, independent nonprofit research organizations. So there's one called Mapping Police Violence um, and another one called Fatal Encounters, um, which is led by actually a former journalist. All of these groups do a combination of crowdsourced information gathering. They compile media reports and make public records requests from police departments, basically gathering data from wherever they can. But just if you're thinking, okay, this is sounding easier now, there's another complication. All of these independent groups define a police killing differently. So, for example, the Washington Post's database, they're only looking at police shootings, so people who died um, from a gunshot wound. Um, Whereas the Fatal Encounters one is actually kind of the most comprehensive. So they're compiling data on anyone who died, like when a police officer was present in under any circumstances. 
say, a car crash after being involved in a police chase, or someone who dies by suicide while in police custody. Despite these various caveats with the available data, Jordan still wasn't deterred. She went ahead and asked our question using all these different data sets. Are people in the Mountain West more likely to be killed by police? And the answer, it was clear. No matter how we analyzed the data, the same thing came came out of it. And that was that uh, the Mountain West region has more people killed by police per capita, so normalized for population, um, of any other region in the U.S. So to put some um, kind of actual numbers on that, so over the past five years, um, on average, there were 4.4 people killed by police per million residents in the U.S. as a whole. But if we look in the Mountain West states, that rate jumps to 7.7 people per million. As we poured over the data, Jordan had some advice for us. I think it's important to remember that data always has its limitations, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. We just have to really dig into kind of where does this data come from, um, who is compiling it and why, and those things really um, guide and inform you in terms of how you can use it in a responsible way. We did want to be responsible with this data. We knew it was only a jumping off point, a, a kind of map to point us in the right direction. It didn't tell us the why behind the numbers. So that's what we tried to do next. And we found one of the answers to be pretty straightforward and central to the high numbers in the U.S. and specifically in the Mountain West. That's coming up. Back in June of 2020, parks and streets across the country filled with the sounds of violins. They were played by people protesting the death of 23-year-old violinist Elijah McLean. The young black man was walking home from a convenience store when he was stopped by the police someone had called saying he looked, quote, sketchy. After a tussle, police placed him in a carotid control hold. That means they applied pressure to the left and right side of his neck to deprive his brain of oxygen and induce unconsciousness. McLean was five foot six, 140 pounds, and was a chronic asthmatic. When he briefly regained consciousness, police claimed he had, quote, crazy strength. Paramedics on the scene gave him the powerful sedative ketamine. He had a cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital, and he died days later. An independent report found the police had no legal reason to stop Elijah McLean, frisk him, or use force. And the paramedics overestimated McLean's weight and gave him too much ketamine. According to our analysis, McLean was just one of more than 1,100 people killed during interactions with police in the Mountain West since 2015. That's more than one and a half times the national average. And there are a lot of theories as to why this is. And we asked a ton of people who studied this very issue what they thought. The most common theory, it boils down to this. Guns. 
guns. The gun culture that's here. It really is as simple as guns. It turns out where there is a high level of household gun ownership, there's often a high level of people killed by police. Police officers are also more likely to be victims. Justin Nix is a criminology professor at the University of Nebraska-Omaha. We asked him why our gun culture plays such a significant role. Officers from day one are trained and socialized to anticipate danger and be prepared for any interaction to potentially go sideways and present a lethal threat to their own safety. So, you know, that puts officers on edge, and seriously, rightfully so. I mean, if a gun could be under any car seat, then um, they, they need to be prepared for that reality. And because of this, Nick says you really can't compare the U.S. to other countries. Countries like our neighbor Canada, for example, where people are five times less likely to be shot and killed by the police. He says it just isn't that simple. And he pointed us to a recent book by Franklin E. Zimmering. It's called When Police Kill. He compared the U.S. to England, Wales, and, and Germany. And, you know, it's never as simple as one correlation, right? But it was, it, it was fascinating to me that he, he observed that cops in Germany were about 35 times less likely to use, to shoot and kill citizens as in the U.S. And lo and behold, they were about 35 times less likely to be shot and killed by a citizen of Germany, right? Again, it's not that simple, but like that's the reason, you know, comparing the U.S. to these other countries is not comparing apples to apples. It's, it's the guns. So guns are one of the central issues when it comes to fatal encounters with the police. And here in the Mountain West, we own more guns than most anywhere else in the country. But still, again, it's not that simple. Nix has another idea for why Mountain West numbers may be especially high. It's access to trauma centers after someone is shot. You know, dispersion geographically, it's just a little bit farther on average to trauma care and minutes matter. And so when you're looking at data that only capture those deaths, it might lead you to believe that officers are using deadly force at a higher rate when maybe they're using deadly force at similar rates and it's just people are dying at a higher rate, if that makes sense. And of course, that's just Nix's theory. But he did mention one thing we know for sure. So if you trust the Washington Post Fatal Force database, something like one in four people shot and killed by police displayed signs of or were known to have a mental illness. That, that might be like a really conservative estimate, I don't know. But in any event, if that's true, we're talking about up to 250 lives a year that we could save if we greatly reduce the frequency that cops interact with people experiencing crises like that. Um, now we gotta find a way to do that safely. We, we don't wanna send the professionals into dangerous situations. So I think that there are ways to do it. We just have to be thinking about, you know, in this uh, alternate universe that we're going to switch over to, have we sort of thought about all possible outcomes? A lot of states in the Mountain West rank among the worst when it comes to the prevalence of mental illness and access to care. This includes Utah, where in September... Golda Barton called 911. So that's why we need a mental health worker. Um, it's super important because I, I really, um, he's sick. Barton's 13-year-old autistic son was having a crisis. She warned dispatch that he might have a BB or pellet gun. She wasn't sure, though. She also told the operator that her father had been shot by police last year and that her son saw it happen. So now he hated cops. When the police arrived... 
What occurred next was recorded on their body cameras. You don't know if it's a real gun either? It's, it's, I don't believe it's a real gun. I don't believe it's a real gun. So unfortunately, we have to kind of treat them all as if they right. are. I know. Um, what is it that you want from us tonight? We need him to go to the hospital. I need him to go to the hospital. I cannot get in there on my own. And he is, and I cannot... When the police found her son in the backyard, he took off running, and a chase ensued. Get on the ground! That's the officer shooting the boy 11 times. Barton's son was wounded, but he did survive. And turns out he was unarmed. After the shooting, the city's mayor said in a statement that she was, quote, heartbroken and frustrated by the incident. Since then, the family has filed suit against the Salt Lake City Police Department in the U.S. District Court. So when it comes to fatal encounters with the police, we're hearing that our gun culture is a problem, So is access to care for folks struggling with mental health crises, and potentially access to trauma care too. But there's another elephant in the room that we're all aware of. That's race. What role does that play? Well, like all things when it comes to data on fatal encounters with the police, it's complicated. I asked our data whiz Jordan Wirfs Brock about that. The information on race comes from things like police reports and media reports. And in many cases, this information is missing completely. So in our Mountain West region, um, between 10 and 20 percent of the the fatalities, there was just simply we don't know the race of of the victim. And that makes it really difficult to analyze these incidents to see if certain groups are being disproportionately affected by police violence. So that said, (laughs) kind of all those caveats out of the way, we still did do analysis. So what we did is we compared kind of the breakdown of these incidents um, by race to the racial demographics of the state. And what we found is even with that that big question mark about race, we do know that some groups are being disproportionately affected by police violence. For example, across all of our Mountain West states, um, if you look at um, the population of of white people, there were about 4.7 fatalities per million residents. Whereas for Black people, that rate is is much, much higher. It's 14.4 deaths per million people. Um, and then if you look at the, the Native American, um, the indigenous population, it's about 7.4 deaths per million people. And that 7.4 number is probably much higher. We have a long history in the U.S. of not tracking race reliably in terms of our indigenous communities. Often when filling in forms... There's no option for Native American except other. Still, even with the undercounted figures we do have, we can zero in on a Mountain West state like Montana and see that indigenous people there are 60% more likely than white people to be killed by the police. We wanted to put a face to that statistic. His name is Cole Stump, and he was killed by the police in the fall of 2020. He spent a lot of time breaking horses. Stomp was raised on the Rocky Boys Reservation. That's in the north central part of the state. He loved being a cowboy. He loved horses. So that was his go-to. If he could be around a horse, he would. He was 29 years old. He had five kids and was a citizen of the Chippewa Cree tribe. 
he was always laughing, teasing. And he'd play dress up even with his girl. <laughs> <laughs> he wore fingernail polish and makeup. <laughs> Those are the voices of some of his family members. That laughter at the end belongs to Tashina Duran, Cole's sister. In the few months since her brother was shot and killed by the Billings police, she's been trying to piece together what happened. I've been in contact with the county attorney's office, the Billings PD records department, the detective from Billings PD. But those agencies say they can't share much information while the case is under investigation. They just stonewall. They don't ever want to release anything. Here's what we do know. Cole Stump was staying with a friend at an apartment complex in Billings in the weeks before his death. He was working under the hood of a car in the parking area when four police officers arrived. They were responding to a call from one of the apartment residents reporting suspicious activity. Billings police chief Rich St. John spoke to reporters the day after Stump's death. And when the officers attempted to detain question and pat him down for weapons and put him in handcuffs for safety purposes. He refused to cooperate and comply. This is The Billings Police Department won't say why they were detaining him. In the press conference, Chief St. John said they were able to get him face down on the ground, but there was a struggle. He said Stump pulled out a semi-automatic handgun from his waistband and pointed it at the officers. Officers disengaged and two fired multiple rounds, striking the man. Stump's sister, Duran, she's not convinced. My brother is not a very big guy. How are they not able to subdue him? You know, how do they not have the de-escalation techniques to stop this? And there's the chairman of the Chippewa Cree tribe. He's also skeptical. He wrote a letter to the Montana Attorney General saying, in regards to indigenous people, quote, Billings police officers appear to continually inflict injury out of anger rather than the need to protect public safety, unquote. We spoke to Melanie Yazzie about this. She's Navajo and a professor of Native American studies at the University of New Mexico. She says that description rings true. The purpose of this violence is to reinforce the settler order. Yazi studies reservation border towns, like Billings. She says many of them sprung up as military and trading outposts when the United States was colonizing the West. They were engaged in Indian wars, right? They were engaged in incredibly violent warfare against Native people. Fast forward 150 years or so, and Yazi says these towns are still hotbeds of resentment, hostility, and violence towards indigenous people. We're not supposed to be off the reservation. You know, we're supposed to be like in our place. And the moment that you stop doing that, you immediately become a threat and then you need to be policed. We reached out to the Billings Police Department. Lieutenant Brandon Woolley handles media relations for the department and got back to us. I won't sit here and tell you that officers don't get frustrated dealing with people and make bad decisions. To say that they do it specifically to a racial group, I don't believe that that's occurring. Still, the department's own data shows indigenous people are overrepresented in its arrests, use of force incidents, and officer-involved shootings. But Willie says they're also more likely to be victims of crime and billings. And all of these things are connected. We have to talk about this substance abuse. We have to talk about the mental health issues. We have to talk about the education rates. We have to talk about the poverty. That's the social stuff, right? That when it breaks down, leads to interaction with law enforcement. 
He says that social stuff is a symptom of historical trauma in tribal communities, something he says law enforcement has no control over and isn't equipped to address. That general viewpoint has driven a movement across the U.S. to redirect funding away from police departments and into social programs. But Woolley says cutting police funding in border towns would be a mistake. When we get to the bottom of this conversation, the Native American culture doesn't need less policing. They truly need more policing. That sentiment, it doesn't sit well with the tribal communities here. We spoke to Angeline Cheek. She's an indigenous justice organizer with the ACLU of Montana, and she's a citizen of the Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux tribes. With a statement like that, it's no wonder why our indigenous people are being killed at such high rates. Cheek says we can't police our way out of this problem. We don't need more policing. We need equitable distribution of resources and the recognition of long-standing treaty rights. As we looked at the data on fatal encounters in the Mountain West, it showed a bleak picture. The numbers of deaths here are more than one and a half times higher than the rest of the country. Law enforcement officers, they're also much more likely to die here in the line of duty, even though those numbers are much, much smaller. So are there any bright spots? Well, turning back to the data, we did find some including the small town of Moses Lake in eastern Washington. So not quite the Mountain West, but right on the border, so we'll take it. Use of force incidents are low here, and fatal police encounters are even lower. And we were intrigued. Are they doing something different that law enforcement in other parts of the region could learn from? We decided to visit this small town. That's where we met up with Johanna bin Wahid. Uh, we have a lot of factories out here, a lot of the car factories. Wahi you know what took what I mean? us like, on a uh, tour of the downtown. It's this hard scrabble working class community out in the dry, flat scablands of eastern Washington. There's a lot of uh, airbag factories. Uh, I believe there's a silicon factory out here. Wahi has lived here in Moses Lake for most of his life. And while the town may not be completely white, and we have a lot of Latinos, lots of Latinos. Wahid is one of the only black people here. So he was really nervous when he helped organize a Black Lives Matter protest in Moses Lake this summer. He says there's a strong conservative white racist element in town. But it, it came together nicely. We just had a nice march, snacks, we talked, shared stories. You know what I mean? It went really, really well, which surprised the hell out of me because I get called the N-word around here quite a lot. And yeah. Wahid and others were protesting police violence and systemic racism across the country. However, they weren't worried about the local cops. Believe me you, I'm not a huge fan of the police and stuff like that, but the police here, I do like them. That's because in Moses Lake, Wahid says the police don't feel like bad guys. They feel like your neighbors. They're very wholesome, they're very localized, they're very human. They go to our gas stations, they go to our gyms, our stores. You see them on and off duty. So it's really hard to hate them. Bailey, come here. Wahid hollers out to his friend Bailey Sampson, who's hanging out near a skate park, and she runs over. Sampson was one of the rally co-organizers, and she agrees with Wahid. Unlike in other towns, the cops here are pretty cool. It's just that they're a part of our community, and I think like that's a big deal. It is a big deal. A lot of cops don't live in the communities that they serve especially in larger cities. 
But Moses Lake is relatively small, with about 20,000 people living here, and has one of the lowest fatal encounter rates in the country, despite having rates of violent crime that are somewhat higher than the national average. Sampson says the cops here know how to defuse situations. Instead of just, I don't know, pulling your gun and being, you know, getting immediately defensive, they kind of want to de-escalate, not escalate the situation. And I think that's a big thing. I think a lot of cops could take a page out of their book at just how to handle people. Over the past seven years, there have been two officer-involved fatalities in Moses Lake and the surrounding area. Both men were armed and one shot a police dog. You compare that to a similar city, such as, say, Klamath Falls, Oregon, it had twice that number. The reason for that could be Police Chief Kevin Fuhrer. If you've got uh, uh, uses of force that are not justified, you got to deal with it. You've absolutely got to deal with it. Fear says his department keeps close tabs on officers that use any force during an arrest. He's been a cop for about three decades and says a good police department begins with hiring the right people and then training the heck out of them. That means officers take extensive annual training in everything from de-escalation techniques to recognizing any implicit biases they have. That plus 40 hours of crisis intervention training every year. That's five times more than what's required by the state. Competing with Canada geese flying overhead during this outdoor interview, Fear tells us why that kind of training is crucial. It's not just giving an officer a gun, a badge, and the, and the tools and the equipment say, go arrest the bad guys. It's giving them the skills to be able to talk to people, be able to build the relationship. That you, When you show up and you're talking to somebody who's maybe a little amped up, you don't come in amped up. You come in and you try, to, you try to calm him down. He has a phrase for this. It's talking people into handcuffs. And it appears to be working. Like last year, when the Moses Lake Police Department used force in less than 3% of its arrests. Whenever that number gets too high, though, fear will track the officers responsible and either work on retraining them or he'll fire them. He also has strict policies for when cops can use physical restraint or lethal force during an arrest. And when it comes to dealing with people who are experiencing a mental health crisis, Fear has an answer for that too. You look at these uses of force where, where an officer has shown up because somebody is in mental health crisis, and maybe that person in mental health crisis has a weapon, and now you've just introduced a law enforcement officer that's carrying a gun that now is worried about somebody coming after them. Uh, we shouldn't be going to those. And that's why Fear has his officers respond to a lot of these situations over the phone first. Because those are the situations that turn bad. Somebody opens the door, they've got a knife in their hand, they lunge at the officer, the officer shoots them. We're not even engaging in those. We're making the phone call and we're staying out. Fear is also working on a new protocol, one that will route these calls to local mental health groups instead of the police. We reached out to Robin Engel, She's a research director at the International Association of Chiefs of Police and a criminology professor at the University of Cincinnati. She tells us that all of the strategies in Moses Lake, that they're elements of a good police department in America. What you see are strong policies, strong training, and strong supervision and accountability mechanisms. But here's the thing in America, unlike other countries, law enforcement training is all over the board. There's no single standard. Agencies vary 
literally agency by agency in terms of not just the quantity of training, but the quality of training. And this can lead to departments like Moses Lake with low fatality numbers and others that completely dwarf the two deaths there. As we explored this daunting issue, we also held listening sessions with community members from our region and with law enforcement officers, both current and former. And that's how we met Logan Daly. Until recently, he was a deputy sheriff in rural Cherry County, Nebraska. Today, he's the managing editor and reporter for five publications based in Wyoming. I would say both are noble professions. I mean, they're, they're both, in my opinion, very important professions. Daly loves his new job as a journalist, but he believes the media can poison how the public sees the police, even in rural areas. He remembers one experience he had as a cop. There was a young man that lived in one of the towns where I used to patrol through, and I drove through one day, and he put his hands up, and I kind of chuckled, and I was like, what the heck? And so I, I stopped, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he says, hands up, don't shoot. And... And this is like an eight-year-old. And so I asked him, I'm like, well, why, why are you doing that? He goes, well, I saw it on YouTube. And I was like, what did you see on YouTube? Well, cops kill people. That really upset Daly. He was flabbergasted. He hopes in his new role, he can foster better communication between the police, the media, and ultimately the community. But he acknowledges that some departments are more willing to talk than others. He blames this lack of transparency on officers trying to protect people's privacy. I don't want to break that, that trust, basically, that the public has in us. And he says if they are seen as breaking that trust... You're co constantly concerned about being sued. Because, I mean, this is America. You can sue anybody for anything. He says more training could help with that. Letting police chiefs and officers know what exactly they can and can't say under the law... All of that said, though, he says there are bad apples, and they're not always dealt with. He remembers one officer he worked with. And I'm not saying this officer was going out and killing people. It was nothing like that. But he was overstepping his bounds. I would bring it up and say, hey, this is the issues. Here's what I have. And then nothing would happen. The bad apples argument, it's come up a lot over the years. Paul Taylor he has an answer for it. This focus on bad apples is, is misguided when we look at, at how to really improve the profession. Taylor also left the force and is now looking at the profession from the outside. He now spends his time trying to figure out how to make policing safer for both citizens and officers. The current approach to how we look at, say, bad outcomes in policing um, really lends itself towards a, a liability focus for police organizations. In other words, if something bad happens, it starts a criminal investigation. Officers involved don't say exactly what happened. That's because they fear prosecution. Meanwhile, case details are sometimes sealed off. That focus uh, stunts the growth of the profession and, and, and really the, the ability to learn. His research at the University of Colorado Denver includes how to minimize accidental shootings. He says that kind of research into policing is needed right now and isn't getting enough attention. I call it the profession that science has left behind because 
in a lot of areas, whether that be from the management perspective to how we look at improving outcomes, uh, we're really stuck in this in this um, Tayloristic mindset that um, if we just tell people to do better, they will. Taylor says we need to analyze incidents of police violence the way we look at emergency room deaths or plane crashes. There's a thousand reasons a plane might crash. If we're only looking at the actions of the pilot and whether or not they were criminal, we would miss why the event occurred most of the time. He says that system wouldn't just pin acts on individuals, but instead make it the responsibility of the entire profession to figure out how to avoid accidents or abuses of power in the future. Former cop and police psychologist Jack Digliani would add, looking at the mental health of cops involved as well, he wants cops to ask for help before their work product would degrade to the point where, um, you know, they they become uh, dangerous to themselves, others, or um, their work product is so bad that they begin to encounter discipline. Dick Liani says police officers face significant stress in their work, and there's a fallacy that asking for help is a sign of weakness. To counteract this, he set up an entire 12-step initiative. It's being used by police officers around the nation to encourage every officer to monitor their mental well-being and to seek help if they need it. But he says there's still not enough focus on mental health. Yes, we still, in fact, have not only a long way to go in departments that, that implement these programs. We also have many departments that have no support programs at all, if you can believe that, in the 21st century. But that is, in fact, the case. He says all officers should have a place to go to, a person to talk to and resources, because he says policing will stick around in one form or another going forward. Without it, he believes there's anarchy. So we need to figure out how to help officers help us. This has been a special episode of Facing West. I'm your host, Maggie Mullen. Thank you so much for tuning in. Your word of mouth is the best way we can reach new listeners. So we really appreciate it when you share. If you're more of a visual person or you just want more of what you heard, you can dive deep into our data on police violence online. All of that is thanks to our data reporter, Jordan Wirfs Brock. Our reporting team for this episode included Madeline Beck, Nate Hedgie, and Savannah Marr. Our sound designer is Liza Yeager. Our artwork is by Luke Anderson. The Mountain West News Bureau is a consortium of NPR member stations covering the region. Our partner stations include Wyoming Public Media, Boise State Public Radio in Idaho, KUNC in Colorado, KUNR in Nevada, KUNM in New Mexico, and the O'Connor Center for the Rocky Mountain West in Montana. Our managing editor is Kate Kincannon. 